Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Heeves. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heeves, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Thank you guys so much for coming back to listen. We have another great episode for you here tonight. We have John Teeter from New York, the Syracuse area. John is a land manager out there like the rest of us, Um, a consultant. He does this for a lot of his clients on the regular and uh, shares a lot of good information with us here tonight. We talk about John's way of doing things with big equipment, you know, creating different berms or thermal pools with uh, dozers and excavators, etc. We also talk about some cool willow planting and different tips on how John plants his hybrid willows or Shrimco willows. Another, even another version that he mentions um, that I've never heard of. So that was pretty cool. Just another great episode, guys, full of information. Uh, John's a great resource, and we enjoyed our chat with him very much. So please, uh, you know, take some notes and, and just let us know what you think of John Teeter here. Um, he'll be on here in just a second. I want to thank the Habitat Hook. Nick Nation over there has been a, a partner of the podcast from a long time ago, uh, almost the beginning. And my habitat hook is definitely one of my key TSI timber stand improvement or hinge cutting tools, tree felling tools. Whenever I have my chainsaw, I have my habitat hook. Um, I like the aluminum extendable version. It's lighter in my hands, has rubber grips on it, extends out very far. I think it's like... Uh, 14 feet, if I remember correctly, um, which is a very awesome piece of equipment, powder-corded, does not rust, everything's great with it, um, 
and really it just helps you soft land the trees, your your hinge cutting, so you don't break that cambrium layer, that connection. Um, it's just a great tool. Like I said, I always have it when I have my chainsaw in the woods. Check out the Habitat Hook at uh, you know Habitat Hook on Facebook, or we have NationsCreations.net, Nick's original website, where you can see all of his products. He even has some adapter type innovations that he's adding to this hook to do other things in the woods. So check him out, and Nick, we appreciate your support at the Habitat Hook. Uh, guys, I want to thank our listeners. You guys, I thank you all the time, but I do that because I really sincerely mean it, and you guys keep this podcast going just with your feedback and, and the way you support us is great. Um, got a few more reviews this week, one from Windy Ridge Farm. I'm going to read it for you here. You and Brian do a great job, very informative. Your guests are very knowledgeable, have listened to all of your podcasts and several more than once. Keep up the good work. Tom Thompson here from Michigan. See, Tom, he was smart enough to put his address in the review. Um, Tom, I know your address. I'll get you that detail because I know exactly where it's going. Sometimes iTunes makes it tough for us to to find, but Tom, that was very uh, thoughtful. Nice work there. Thank you for the review. We also have another one from uh, B. Miller. So much information. I've listened to every one of these episodes twice and several of them three to four times. Keep up the good work, guys. B. Miller, thank you very much. I think that's Brian Miller from our Facebook Habitat chat group. I'm going to get your address and send you a decal, too. Guys, there's a link below in this episode you're listening to right now. Just go to the notes or the details of the episode, and it'll say leave a great review. If you want to hit that, leave a great review, type us out something nice, I will send you a free 5-inch Habitat podcast decal. And the reason we do that is because it helps us, you know, keep remaining at the top under Habitat Management, Food Plotting, etc., on the iTunes podcast list. So thank you very much. And if you can, please subscribe to our Apple Podcast Network. Also, if you haven't, check out the YouTube link and subscribe to our YouTube too. A lot more stuff this year. we got some cool things coming in Ohio. Um, turkey season starts Saturday. We videotape all of our stuff. Really looking forward to putting up the content this year for you guys and just glad that, you know, you're leaving the great reviews and, and sending us good notes on on Facebook Messenger, telling us how much you like it. It really helps. Thank you very much. Uh, we do appreciate that. I also want to say, if there's anything you want to know about us, you're going to find it at HabitatPodcast.com. We have new hoodies, new hats, all that good stuff. Every podcast episode is up there. Um, if you have any listener questions, we're, we're, we're kind of prepping for a listener Q&A podcast coming up. Feel free to hop on there, submit your email, ask your questions, and um, we'll consider you for a, an episode coming up. We just want to hear from you guys, see what you're doing. So if you can, join our group called the Habitat Chat on Facebook. Up to like 13 or 1,400 members now. Great resource for information. There's new posts every day. Um, so, again, I just want to thank you guys for, for helping out with that because uh, it's really a resource full of knowledge. And, um, and you guys are learning as we're learning. It's just great. So thanks for, for that as well. I want to thank uh, Packer Mask Tulsa Packers, Huntwise, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Morse Nursery, Killer Food Plots, and Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Austin. Thank you guys very much. Let's get back to our episode now with John Teeter from New York, all things Whitetail Habitat Management. All right, guys, we have John Teeter on here with us tonight from Whitetail Landscapes. John, how you doing, man? Good, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. 
Hey, no problem. No problem. We've been uh, chit-chatting a little bit on Instagram for, shoot, a long time now, actually. Um, you sent some articles a while back that you've written, and and uh, you piqued our interest. We wanted to talk to you and, and hear about you and your point of view and, and how you handle the habitat management side of things. So why don't you kick us off? We always like to use the term paint a picture on who John Teeter is, where you're from, all that good stuff. Yeah, sure. So... No, I have a kind of an interesting background. Um, I grew up in a little place uh, called Syracuse, New York. It's in uh, upstate central New York area. I was lucky because when I was a kid, my father was big into hunting. You know, he had a farm uh, that, that he inherited from his father down in a little place called Whitesville, which is in Allegheny County. Um, okay. And those are some of the hotbeds hotbed hunting areas in New York State. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with Western New York, but, um, oh, yeah. you know, it's some of the really quality hunting, at least from a quantity standpoint. So I got to experience uh, some diverse hunting sets, and I hunted a lot around Liverpool and uh, Camillus, which are small suburbs outside of Syracuse, and uh, low deer populations. Um, I hunted industrial parks. Uh, I've hunted almost every terrain type and landscape you've ever thought of. Uh, Adirondack areas, I've hunted in the Catskills. Um, I've hunted uh, really low deer populations and really high deer populations. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the framework for kind of a lot of my upbringing. But I, I can tell you what really shaped my knowledge was when I was a kid, I used to track deer in industrial parks. I was 12 years old, and I remember just spending days after school and weekends tracking deer. And I don't know what my parents thought I was doing over there, uh, but you know they let me go, you know, and they just I, I just learned so much in those environments and uh, where deer wanted to be, why, how they reacted to my own pressure. Uh, you know, this is this is something you think about when you listen to some of these guys up in Maine where they're they're tracking deer and trying to get ahead or cut them off and. I'm doing it in industrial parks, so yeah, that was my that, that was my training wheels example. Oh, very cool! And how did you get into, um, you know, like I guess, gap us now from then to now? What happened next? Uh, sure. Did you go sure. to school for this? What, what have you been up to the last, you know, twenty years? Yeah, so you know, I went to college, and um, when I was in college, you know, I played sports. I was real sports focus, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Right. And I, got <laughs> I got a technical degree. I came out, I had, had some good jobs, and uh, I hunted a lot of state land when I was in college, so big, big woods. I learned to hunt, you know, vast forests. And um, right out of school, um, I started writing for, actually, Archery Talk was really, at that time, it was huge. Archery Talk was probably the biggest archery i don't know what it is like today but it was the biggest archery website there was and was uh, huge. you're right we were friends with i had done some writing i have been writing for magazines right out of college and i had done some writing for archery talk and they had a segment segmented area just for us on the website and we started doing some really involved testing with some of these manufacturers and at one point i was testing 40 bows a year um, I built automated shooting equipment. We had equipment that was more sophisticated than some of the manufacturers, which was, 
and this is in 2003, 2004, or, you know, early. Um, and so that grew. I got to get in the outdoor industry. You know, you and I were just talking about offline, Jared, Don Agins. I met Don Agins in 2004, 2005. He was a writer for North American Deer Hunter. We were sitting at the bar drinking beers, and I'm just like, you know, I learned a lot about the industry through that young period of my life. And as time went on, you know, I kind of got um, – I don't I don't want to say it, my perspective changed, but it was a little bit harder to write for certain magazines and deadlines and all that kind of stuff. And I, I just – I got turned off a little bit. And, you know, being exposed to a lot of different people in the industry, you know, 15, 18, 20 years ago, I was learning about different techniques, you know, and, and strategies as it related to hunting. And – kind of my technical background kind of influenced and shaped my really high attention to detail and shaping and designing my own hunting properties. Um, and I think really that triggered this, this whole mindset shift and I could hunt offensively. I wasn't just hunting what came at me. I was manipulating habitat. And that started over 15 years ago. Um, and I wasn't tied into the Ellingers, the guys out of Michigan or any of that stuff. I'm in central New York. You know, we're not a hotbed. Um, and I'm not seeing those areas are either, but it really, <laughs> it, you know, it was, it was definitely, and I'm talking to, I, I'm sitting at a bar talking to, uh, uh, Lee Lukowski. Okay. And right next to me, and I'm, I'm sitting right in the middle of the ice and I'm talking to a bu- bunch of like big timers and, and they're like, where are you from, man? I'm like, Syracuse. Like what's Syracuse? You know, I'm like, Syracuse, we got a basketball team. We're good at basketball. He's like, I've never heard of you guys. And I'm like, New York State, nobody, you know, 120 class deer here today is still world class. Sure. And the environment's completely different. And I think a lot of people can't relate to that, um, but I can relate to it because that's how I grew up. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit of my history and the the business we can talk about, but that's kind of how I got here. And uh, I've met a lot of people and I've learned a lot of things and I've I've failed a lot. And as a result, I've, I've learned how to accomplish things based on my failures. So. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. It sounds like um, a lot of similarities there in terms of kind of how Brian and I are, are coming up in this whole place and and learning and meeting people yep. and it's just it's a great network of of people and nuts like you know you and me and Brian we're just all crazy about this stuff and it's cool to hear your your story and, and from yeah from New York. Um, that I've never hunted in New York, but I know if you're referring to Michigan as a as a hot zone, it must be tough in New York because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty tough here. But Brian, you were you were just up there doing a plan, weren't you? Yeah, I was in Wellsville, which I'm pretty sure was uh, Allegheny County. There doing a land plan for a client. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah, beautiful country for sure. It is, and you know that's probably some of the the best ground. Those areas are some of the best ground in, in the state. So you, at that point, you're you're seeing some of the pinnacle, you know, the, the, the Paramount areas comparably to where I I live. You know, the always look at the buck buck take per square mile. That's in the six to nine bucks per square mile range. Whereas where I live, it's one, maybe two and a half. Adirondacks is zero to one. So you start okay. to get that as a as a gauge, and that actually shapes the way you design and, and uh, set up properties. So, you know, um, 
Yeah, so Walsall is beautiful. And, and my farm is about, oh, five minutes from there, my family's Really? Farm. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Yeah, it's incredible. And actually, I just did a client yesterday. I just got back from a client trip. Probably, I don't know, 30 minutes from there uh, out in uh, Avoca. And so, you know, I travel all over the state. You know, I do a ton of clients. Um, and it just, it's it's busy. This is, I, you know, like I was telling Jared earlier, I mean, I'm booked all the way now through March of next year, right? I just, I do so many clients. There's, it's busy, but, you know, I'm starting to build um, a pretty big network, but I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's a lot of work and every client's different and there's a lot of entertaining factors that go into the whole, the whole day of these, these events, you know, so. For sure. But it's great meeting people like you guys. It's great meeting you guys. It's great meeting clients. For sure. That's the best part of it. Yeah, I would say that one of the things that I've always said about this is the people we've met is definitely my favorite part of this yeah. whole thing. Um, you know, we have we have people we talk to all over as well, and it's just it's really cool and, and humbling. Somebody tells you they love your podcast. It's just so cool. It's, it's like all the hard work is, you know, paying off, and people are learning, and that's what we're here for. So glad that, that you're doing the same thing. We talked to a guy last week out in um, – Wisconsin, Todd, he's doing a heck of a job. It's just cool to, you know, kind of, what, shop talk, I guess, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah, it's great because, you know, you know, I, I try to feel like, and I was, you know, I've been on a bunch of podcasts, and I really feel like one of the things I've gotten out of this is I love n- not only educating but being educated. You know, I've been on clients that have done management of their properties for 30 years and you've got to unwind the clock and so it you have to be very tactful and and direct and if they're open-minded and they usually are and i I usually so you know kind of feel them out even before we we sign them up um i i won't really if if i'm not comfortable going to a client's property based upon that initial discussion i won't go because if they're not going to you know, be open-minded or interested in, 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 in thinking about things in a kind of a different light or perspective, why are they wasting their time with me? So, you know, and, and that rarely happens. You know, a lot of times they're kind of trying to seek you out and understand, you know, what they can, what they can learn from you. And I'm willing to share. I mean, I help, I help a lot of friends. Um, you know, just today, one of the guys that I did a podcast with called me to help him on his property. And, we have a relationship, and, and I'm absolutely willing to do that. And the, the sets of designs and legwork I've done, I've worked on wetland projects to uh, completely mountainous terrain, um, you know, just all different settings. And, and to be honest with you, you know, I'm a small landowner. I own 50 acres, um, and it was one of the hardest decisions to spend my hard, hard-earned money buying a piece of property that I knew full well that that would be the hardest property I would I would end up hunting and, and I've turned that into something really special. Uh, and it's only, it's only been three years and I passed 150 inch deer this year. Now I'm, again, I'm in New York state. I just told you 120 class is, is uh, world-class and I was able to pass a deer like that this year. Now, was it on purpose? Yes. To some degree. Um, I wanted to tag out early cause my wife is, uh, she's on me. 
because my whole life is deer hunting and, you know, <laughs> I need to be quick about these things. We can relate. So, you know, I shot a nice 130 inch deer this year and, uh, we were, we were done and, and, uh, we killed another 138 off, off my property. So that just gives you an idea. The biggest buck on my property three years ago was a two and a half year old, you know, 70 inch deer. So, um, it evolves, right? The strategy, the technique, the philosophy, sure. the tactics. I'm killing my deer on the first day I go after it. If I don't, I don't know if you guys heard me on other podcasts, but I told a lot of stories, and this is certainly not arrogance by any means. But I don't have time to mess around. I'm killing the day I go after a deer. It's dying that day. And, Nothing wrong with that. And for the past, it's been eight years. Um, one deer it took me three years or two years. Uh, I hunted it three times. I saw it all three times, and I killed it the, the third time. Um, but, you know, that was an anomaly. The other deer I killed the first time. I missed a deer. You know what? I'm lying to you. I missed a deer, right? I missed a deer the first time. I missed a big nine-pointer, and I killed the buck that I was going after um, the third hunt. And I another target deer. I, I had four target deer this year in New York. That never happens. I only have one to go after. And I had four. I mean, I would. I didn't know what to do with myself. I was like, I don't know how to handle this. So my wife, I'm, I don't know what to do, you know. And uh, anyhow, sorry to be long-winded, but you know, no, you're the fine. Experience, the experience in this, and the gains you get um, again from doing, you know, offensive tactics and habitat manipulation, uh, you know, for specific species is it's just it's a game changer. And uh, I've really enjoyed it, and I, I really love helping people and. I've got clients, like i got two clients this year that have 20 acres. One's property looks like a beach. It's all sand. i got another client this year that's, uh, you know, 1,000 acres, right? Um, most of them are in that 60 to 100-acre range, and um, I've worked with all walks of life, a lot of cops, attorneys, doctors, um, uh, a lot of Amish clients, uh, Mennonites, um, you know, just a lot of diverse cultures, experiences, all walks, all races, you know, and I just, man, you learn a lot from people and, uh, you know, it's, it's cool. It's really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So you had four target bucks. That That's impressive anywhere, but especially in New York. So I, I got to hear, what is your approach there in that highly pressured area that's not really known for mature bucks? Uh, what are you doing up there to get this kind of success? So Syracuse, Syracuse is a good example of a suppressed area from a weather system standpoint. So I just did an article for North American Deer Hunter. So I write for hunting magazines, like I said earlier. I still do a little bit of writing. And it was about being the efficient hunter. And, um, you know, I, 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 I want people to follow me and, 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 and you know, because I'm trying to put information out there. But a lot of my decisions are weather-based. Um, and and, and um, really triggering into – not only how wind moves through terrain, but how weather systems affect movement. Um, and I've done a few other podcasts on that topic. I did one on wind, um, on, and I think that's a really good one to listen to if anybody has a chance to listen to that. But, you know, wind-based sighting, I think, uh, is, is, is definitely an overlooked thing. Um, there's two real big factors that come into my hunting property is social dynamics, the way the herd interacts with each other, and the flip side of it is how deer based upon not only pressure, but that social dynamic aspect of these relationships. Uh, deer are really passive territorial. They're not fully territorial, and does are more 
territorial than bucks, at least from a passive kind of mindset. And so it's in placing these deer in, in key locations, not, not like they're, you know, in a cage, but giving them, you know, the, the right situations where, you know, they want to be uh, resident and then making sure based on, you know, the topography features is fitting in space or other areas for kind of those, 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 hopefully those mature, you know, older age class bucks. And it's just picking the right time. It's all timing. It's the when and where. And the where, you should know where. The when, I usually use weather. And the, the, the highest factor that, you know, I simplify it, right? Uh, most of the time it's temperature. Temperature drives most of my decisions. It's relative temperature. So it's temperature based upon a short window. It's not a two-week window. It's a three-, four-, five-day window. Barometric pressure is the next factor. Um, you know, I like hunting uh, windy days, not calm days. And then the last factor is really sunshine. I like high-pressure days. I've talked about that on other podcasts. And really high-pressure days, uh, not only are they advantageous for, from a wind standpoint, uh, uh, but from from a, a you know a sense standpoint, uh, a lot of times your your perspiration or anything that comes off your body, your your organic molecules, your scent molecules, what have you, uh, because of the pressure in the air, those tend to, to rise up. So you're cheating the wind a lot. Um, and and really, I think a lot of people don't recognize when you do habitat manipulation uh, for for like I said in this case deer, um, some of those changes are going to impact you know, the, the way the wind flows through through the terrain, and that can be a positive and negative. So um, sure. sometimes when I'm designing hunting properties, for example, let's say I had a, a food plot, um, and we're in there with a dozer, and we're working on a hillside terrain setting. And mind you, my topography on my property is the elevation changes about 300 feet. Okay, so there's 300 feet of variation throughout the property, and it's got a lot of undulation, which makes it really hard to hunt. It allows you to stack a lot of gear, as long as you design it right. Uh, food and vet food and cover. I'm a big proponent of that on highly pressured ground. A lot of guys aren't. There's a lot of reason why they're not. Um, but we don't want deer to move very often, very far. Um, but using some of the features like using a dozer in there to clear off benches, uh, to create better grade slopes, uh, even tearing off food plots. So you get thermal drop in certain areas. So that actually becomes an attraction point for entry and exit spots. So you advantage the deer when you do these designs, but you got to figure out how, when you advantage them, how to hunt them. So you don't want to advantage them too much where you can't hunt them, but you want to give them, you know, kind of mostly the advantage. So tearing off food plots is kind of a good example of that. And then planning, street plantings. There's a way to manipulate and enforce uh, a level of non-transparent trees. Evergreens is a good example. And that slows down wind. In uh, placing back cover or coves, for deer, the purpose of that is decreasing wind. Uh, that creates a thermal advantage and a wind advantage for the deer, particularly in bedding areas. So it's looking at the terrain features in concert with some of the manip manipulation tactics to give you kind of these ultimate setups. And uh, that's how I've designed my property, and it's shoot to kill. You know, I'm going there, I'm killing, and then I'm out. Like I'm a ghost. I don't put any sun out. I don't do anything crazy. I want to be a ghost in the woods. And I think uh, that's kind of the tactics that I, I try to kind of employ with my clients. So sure. Yeah, well, let me back. Let me back you up to you spoke spoke about uh, wind-based bedding and, and taking advantage of that terrain. Is that something that you're naturally finding and working with, or is there ways that you can kind of improve on that and and do some 
physical changes as a as a manager? Yeah, you can. I mean, in placing, like one of the examples is um, uh, when you're creating bedding areas and when you open up an area, recognize that wind, depending on how many, you know, how open the canopy is or, you know, how many trees you leave behind when you, when you do those cuttings, um, there's going to be more swirling in those areas. So if you have a traditional north wind, a lot of times, depending on, you know, where this opening is, that could end up being an east wind or southeast wind. Um, so you'd be amazed, like, I get to go back to clients' properties and uh, it's usually not during hunting season because I'm inundated with my own selfish reasons. Um, but, you know, I'm able to kind of walk those properties and, and look at them from, you know, how I would hunt this and look at how wind moves through those areas at certain points of the day, and it changes. You know, remember, when you have high-pressure days, like I was talking about earlier, wind in the afternoons tends to be a little bit more volatile. Heating and cooling is, is uh, different in those situations. So uh, let me give you a quick example. So I'll tell you, tell you about a buck I killed. I uh, went after him the first day, and I uh, was fortunate to get this deer. You know, and, and, you know, I want to say this is, this is kind of by luck, but, but not necessarily. So my wife had it on. It was a birthday. And I told her, I'm going to kill that buck on Thursday. This is a Tuesday. I was looking at the weather systems. If we, if we keep getting this north-northeast wind, I said, he's going to come out of this bedding area. Well, in the morning, and I didn't know if he was in this area or not. It was, you know, it, it's just gut feel knowing how the deer use the terrain features. Um, once he was in that area, at least I had hoped for, all of a sudden in the afternoon, I got a ping on one of my cell cameras. A group of does was headed that way. I'm like, oh, crap, this is, this is going to totally screw up this buck's movement in this area. Now, it was a north wind that actually circled around and actually ended up being a southeast wind. And that was typically what I would expect in those areas. But when it got to another feature that I was hunting them at, I call these social zones, just an area where deer tend to congregate. There's a lot of uh, poo and pee in those areas, and we focus on poo and pee with all my clients. And uh, we can talk about that later. But there's a lot of socialization in these areas. Well, point being is those does were headed in that area. So my chances went from like 70% down to 50%. And I was, I was going to, I was very upset. I told my wife, I said, I'm going to kill him Thursday. So she, she told me in the morning, are you still going after him? I said, he's up there. I said, I bet you these does peeled off. You know, this buck is, is pretty aggressive. He's more territorial than the rest. I, I think he's going to come through this one lane. Well, he was supposed to show up at 530 based on kind of at least what I had hoped and not that he was patternable, but that was kind of the time that he'd shown up a little bit traditionally. Again, when base bedding, he was in that area. And I'll answer your question in a second. But as he came in that area, uh, this social zone that I created was an area that they uh, they scrape on. So they go from one scrape tree to the next scrape tree. And they're eastern white pines. I love eastern white pines. Now, when you said you created that social zone, what, what did you do exactly? Yeah, basically I created a small opening, okay? And all I did in this area was I focused on two points of entry, a point of entry and a point of exit. It's surrounded by shrubbery, so I maintain the shrubbery. Some of it's invasive, but I maintain the shrubbery so it pinches the deer down. And in those areas, because traditionally, once, once they build up an interest level and you pinch the deer to travel through a certain area, um, and it's, it's got to be a certain distance away from their bedding, and this is roughly within 70 to 90 yards, um, that distance is about ideal for these, these, these areas. And that social zone kind of maintains a little bit of food component, and it's naturalized food. So there's some edible uh, shrubbery, and then there's some non-edible shrubbery. But there's also, um, and I think that year that I killed that deer, uh, this was a few years ago, I ended up just going and backpack spraying in July and just killing the area and letting it just uh, 
regenerate with 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 annual forbs. Gotcha. So it was just naturalized. I, I created a, a light source of food that wasn't highly attractive, and that's what I do in bedding areas. So food and bedding, just using a kind of a naturalized forb source of, of food in concert with, you know, basically two scrape trees. And they went from tree to tree, and they, they socialized at that distance away from that bedding area and head off to, to a food source. So it's not that, you know, it, there's just a lot of interest point from distance uh, as it relates to bedding. And deer spend a lot of time in those areas. So the, right. just to finish the story, as the buck came into this area, the thermals as air cool, right, the dense air, cold, dense air, it sucks into these openings. So never really hunt on openings. Uh, as a deer walked into that area, he had to travel, oh, maybe 15, 20 yards to get to the spot where I could get a shot at him. And, again, I'm off the food source. If he had delayed maybe five to ten minutes of walking into that zone, he would I would have got winded. Um, there was enough thermal sink at that point of time, ten minutes later, that he would have winded me. So, you know, inches, man, it's, it's, it, this is a game of inches. Sometimes oh, yeah. These deer. And um, to, to better answer your question, at least, how do you get deer to bed in certain areas? When you're setting up a bedding area, let's say it's just uh, on a hilltop, um, and you're cutting timber. And forget the technique, hinge cutting, dropping trees, whatever. Um, the areas where you're going to emplace deer, creating back cover, thermal cover, false canopy, whatever the technique is. Create variation in this location. If they have variation, forget the hump, forget the, the military crest, forget all that stuff. If they have variation in space within those bedding areas, they'll get up and move and reorientate themselves to that wind, but they still remain in that bedding area. Define their exits and entrances out of that bedding area. That's the trick. That's the whole trick. People miss that all the time. Uh, know where they're coming and going. I know how that deer entered that bedding area. I didn't have a camera over there, but I know how he entered the bedding area. But I did know how he's going to leave the bed in there. And so that upped my probability. So, um, you know, pray, create diversity with, within those bedding habitats and ensure that you emplace, you know, either treetops, shrubbery, whatever you're working with in different orientations so the deer can move themselves around as it relates to the wind. And, and does do base, you know, there is wind-based bedding, at least for, for some of these doe herds, particularly on highly pressured ground. And highly pressured ground, one thing I'll say, and I'll shut up in a second here, um, when deer position, position themselves in highly pressured ground, do not think that the wind is coming over their back and curling over this, this structure. It's eddying over that structure, and, and they can smell behind them. Do not think that is exactly the case. I see more time than not wind coming directly at deer's face on highly pressured ground. And this, you know, that, that's a lot different than a lot of people think. So know your deer, know your deer herd, know how much pressure being applied to the deer, and respectively, know how they react to that. And you can use camera, observation data. Uh, just just, just take light of that because I think that will change the way you think about how deer bet. Um, early season, less pressure. Later season, using more pressure. That's going to change how they orient and they focus on areas and how they approach and how they create safety or feel safe in an area. And that will, that will dictate their physical orientation in relationship to structure. So it's, it's you know, you can look at it a bunch of different different ways. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point that uh, not just putting the bedding in because we've, we've heard some pointers and tips on creating bedding, but thinking about it further, like you mentioned, as far as how they're going to be entering and exiting and, yeah. and trying to use that to your advantage too. That, that's, a, that's a really good piece of information there for sure. 
Yep, yep, that helps. Yep. So you mentioned earlier also about tiering food plots and maybe using a bulldozer to uh, do some different uh, techniques with that. Explain that a little bit deeper for our listeners. Sure. Um, so I'll talk about a property I worked on a few years ago, and uh, this property in upstate New York. And, uh, you know, the food plot was, oh, I don't know, maybe a couple acres. And we put a bedding area, I want to say, I want to say it was no more than 30, 30 yards uh, at the edge of this food plot. And, and think of the food plot in kind of a kidney shape. A lot of times I'll take a two or three acre food plot and I'll shrink it down. Uh, I want to minimize their visual advantage in these areas. Um, but I don't necessarily always want to minimize their scent advantage. Uh, and here's why. Um, Deer on highly pressured ground have a tendency to focus more on, um, you know, smell and, and sight uh, than, than any other feature. But, but smell is, is, is number one. So there's a lot of tactics that go, goes into that strategy. But when you advantage deer, you give them a false sense of security. I'll, I'll give you another tactic for this in a second. So this will help your, your listeners. If you create kind of, a, we'll just say a pooling area. So let's create this kidney-shaped type food plot, and uh, on one of the ends, let's just say it's the north end of this or one of the ends, um, you create kind of a puddle, an area where uh, it's depressed, and you tie that bedding area directly to that, you know, depressed area. Uh, as, as obviously the, the temperature drops, the density of the area, you know, that's a factor, um, that will become a pooling effect. Now, this you're going to see this all over the place when you start to look at uh, hilly ground, right? There's going to be certain areas where hilly ground becomes really more advantageous for them to bed in, and, and you'll see a, a lot more buck interest, especially in isolated areas. But and John, please bed, John, when you know, you're when you're saying depressed, you mean actually like lower elevation, or are you yep. doing something to the the land itself? Yeah, no, you, you're you're manipulating topography. You're actually taking a bulldozer. You could take a loader. You could do it with a shovel. Um, you're actually creating a lower depression at that okay. entrance point. And that allows at least, almost think of a funneling collection, air. if you will, probably. Yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna funnel, funnel basically the, the thermals into that particular area. And a lot of times air will swirl in those areas. Again, that's the mixing of hot and cold air. And, um, you know, as the deer enter those areas, they'll, they'll feel more comfortable. So you're creating a false sense of safety. Now, you wanna position yourself some somewhat opposite of those areas, uh, and also create downward slopes, right? Let the thermals advantage yourself, but again, put yourself some distance away from from the entry and exit point. Right. And then subsequent to that, and one of the reasons I killed this buck was I, I've been using walk behind brush cutters for 20 years. I was using them in college, running them, and uh, I create a lot of these small trails where, you know. Um, there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, let's let's just say goldenrod, for example, falling over in the in the trail system, and those are areas that I walk on. But, you know, they're going to as they walk through those areas, you know, the goldenrod is going to hit them in the face, or you know, whatever debris is going to hit them in the face, and they're going to feel a sense of safety because they know anything that traveled on that corridor, they're going to know, they're going to have an idea that it's there. So creating either depressions or you know these areas that are highly dense but accessible. Um, where there's going to be debris that they're going to have interest in and smell, um, 
that just helps kind of create this false sense of security. And we're doing that a lot in the designs. And, you know, that's just kind of one example. But, you know, I've manipulated hillsides. So you have bench padding uh, in certain areas. And, and there's definitely a lot of different tactics you can go into uh, of how to increase their interest on benches and, and uh, you know, creating thermal pools and benches. I, I don't know anybody who's doing this type of stuff, but, man, I've seen – I've had clients that have gone out with excavators and do, done some of the same things I've done after we talked about. And, uh, you know, they're creating thermal pools for deer to kind of lay up in. And, and a lot of people are like, that's crazy. You know, it depends on the slope of the hillside. But, you know, they're really serious about getting deer to bed in certain areas so they have enough space you know, there's there's a social segregation and sexual segregation between deer, and it's not always based upon food. Um, a lot of people think it's food based. It's it's not always food based. Um, a lot of it's just social dynamics. A lot of it's personalities. Um, as people get older, same with deer, will humanize this. They like space, and big bucks like space, and that's that's always ever present tactic. So creating more space for deer, usable space. Uh, Creating false security; those are great tactics. Yeah, no that that seems interesting, and we talked about that on a different podcast where you know Dan Infold always finds the balloons in the thermal hubs where bedding is either there or nearby. Yeah. All the different thermals and, and winds and scents, if you will, all meet. Now, what do you do on flat ground? On all flat ground, where you, I guess, would be digging a hole, if you will, but. Um, do you use any sort of blockading or any planting, screening, things like that for directional travel or manipulation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the typical tactics of light hinge cutting in areas just to kind of isolate, you know, certain areas. I mean, it's good to have dead zones. You know, it's tough when you have a small land, uh, you're a small landowner. You know, you don't want to have a lot of dead zones. You want to optimize all your space. I mean, most of my clients are, you know, once they're managing their property, they become you know, more selective in the deer that they're taking. And it's funny because, you know, there's a lot of tactics. I mean, I was just uh, on Easter, I, I actually walked the property in the afternoon and uh, my wife wanted to kill me. You know, she's like, I, I lied to her. I told her that I was I was going to a buddy's house, but I actually went to a client's house for, for three hours and, and he's been doing a lot of work. And anyhow, so, um, you know, we talked about on his property, he's got pretty flat ground in a lot of areas. and um, you know, it's got a lot of invasive plants. So we're dealing with invasives and then complementing that with, with some native plantings. And, and really the most important in any terrain situation, forget if it's hilly or, or flat, you got to have a good base of cover. If you build a good base of cover, then you focus on edible food, right, planted edible food, shrubbery, those type of things, and then food plots. And you can use food plots as a means to keep deer off those edible sources of food and that regeneration. So food plots, to me, are actually an alternative option to kind of saving the uh, the woody structure or the other structure that, that's edible. Um, but, yeah, you can manipulate in small ways. You know, on flat ground, um, it's way easier to create segregation and compartmentalize deer, way easier. Um, it's easy to create horizontal structure. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier. Um, even on my own property, I mean, my property is completely, you know, it's a lot of undulation. It's all drumlin look. And um, I'm creating a lot of open areas. I'm integrating a lot of evergreens. Um, I'm a big spruce guy. Uh, I love, like I said, I really like eastern white pines as well. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to plant native plants that are in those areas. And, and in my call plans when I'm designing the properties, 
I'm introducing a lot of planted trees, and hopefully there's transplants they can use locally. But yeah, 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 habitat manipulation on flat ground, wetland areas, you can introduce, you know, high spots going there with your, and I'm not talking federal wetlands, so let's just be clear on that. I don't want to get myself in trouble. Areas where you can manipulate and, and do, do a lot of work, because I've worked on a lot of wetland areas. Um, sometimes just drying those out, going in with your loader, you know, creating mounds. You know, those are pretty simple tactics. I've done them with crates, uh, plastic crates, um, and, and uh, take the muck, dry out the muck, throw some hemlocks on there. Um, you know, you can do a lot to create these mounds in these flat areas to, to create interest. But, you know, I, I only do that kind of in wet areas. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of tactics on flat ground that, that, that apply to hilly ground. Hilly ground, the only difference is there is you've got to kind of maintain some visual advantage. They're there for a reason. They like the visual advantage. Don't take that away from them. So there's some real good tactics that can uh, you can employ on, on, on hilly terrain that, that are a little bit unique. So, uh, you know, they'll get used to being compartmentalized on, on uh, flat ground. So don't be scared to create these small pockets of cover and connect the dots. Real simple. So, John, how could somebody tell the difference between a federal wetland and something that they'll be able to maybe get in there and mess around with? How can they go about making sure they're within the law before doing that? Yeah, so there's a, well, there's some permitting options. So we've, you know, I've worked with um, NRCS uh, locally to, to have some permitting options. Now, there's nothing against cutting firewood. And a lot of times some of the tactics, at least on some of these properties and within the law is um, to, to manipulate. And a lot of times it's tag alder swamp. Um, and if you're familiar with tag alder, that's, some of the best dam cover you'll ever see. Uh, but it's hard to work with, and, it, and you want to get in there with a forestry mulcher. Um, when you have any time you have soil disturbance, feds are going to pull the red flag on you, um, particularly in areas that they've previously enhanced. Wet, wetlands are, are, are not heavily prevalent in, in the United States, and let alone in our area. So you can get so – there are some permitting options through your local NRCS office, you can call them. DEC uh, or our local, like similar DNR in Ohio, um, they have a website for wetland information. And then the feds also have a, uh, their own wetland site. So you get to see the different, there's variation of wetland types. Uh, you get to see what class your wetland is and they categorize them. And there's that classification allows you to do certain things and other things you can't do. So you've got to kind of go down that path if you're in that situation. But wetlands can be really productive. Don't think wetlands can't be uh, highly productive. Uh, you know, uh, you know, deer habitat. You can you can do a lot with wetlands, and and you know I've experienced that. But if I had a choice, I probably would have a small amount of wet ground on a property. I wouldn't want it to be the predominance of my property. Um, and and that's you know that's just from a buying standpoint. So, John, you mentioned some a lot of conifer planting a couple minutes back. I just want to hit yep. it quick before we move on. I want to ask you about switchgrass next. Um, are you using, you know, native conifer, spruce, whatever, as cover, thermal cover? Are you using it as cover for travel corridors? Are you using the white spruce or cedar as um, social points? Give me a little bit of rundown on that real quick. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, eastern white pine, for example, like we talked about earlier from a social standpoint, when I see an eastern white pine um, and I'm designing a property and I'm trying to create a travel corridor, I'm 99.9% of the time trying to target 
that location is a scrape location. The soft bristles, the aromatic features, um, usually the type of uh, associated ground, which it's easy to create a scrape in those areas. Um, those are those are just great sources of interest. And you know, once there's that interest, there's enough branching where you can continue to have that be highly active. You don't have to go in there with your, you know, your vine, your grapevine, all these things that I see. You know, that's just a, a present feature that you can work with. Um, thermal. I'll give a good recommendation for your users, um, and, and this is this is uh, area specific. So we have a big snow load uh, where I live, and we get over 100 inches of snow a year. Some of these snow belt areas like Buffalo and like Syracuse and uh, north of me, um, minimally you want eight acres of thermal cover per 40 acres. So that's a good threshold for people to work off of. Now that varies based on location. So the Adirondacks areas, and I have a bunch of clients on the Adirondacks, that's going to be significantly different. And usually those are hemlock settings. So you're, you're working a lot of times with hemlocks. Um, but, you know, introducing spruce as an example is always a great tree. Very low, tr you know, they're very hard to see through, right? The transparency factor is awesome. They're great screening trees. Um, you know, whites tend to do a little bit better in, in shady areas. But if you're going to put them in your woodlots, make sure they get enough sun. You know, most of these trees need six hours of sun. Um, and if you're not thinking about the specific uh you know, soil features and, and the related needs of the tree, you're wasting your time. So make sure you're matching the, you know, the, the soil features to the, to the actual planting. Um, I think conifers are great for travel and corridors and things of that nature, but I typically use them as a staple within um, bedding areas, uh, particularly for back cover. Um, there's a whole host of strategies on how to create back cover, what species, plants. I've been on tons of guys' properties. I've seen them use all sorts of stuff, actually creating dog houses out of, uh, you know, wood. I mean, I've seen everything you could ever think of. And guys get pretty innovative, and uh, guys, gals, get, they get pretty innovative. So, you know, I think conifer is a good base form of cover. Always focus on a base form of cover for bedding. And and there's multiple species. You can coppice trees. You can coppice ash. Um, I'm just trying to think. I've, I've, done, I've done all sorts of techniques to kind of create this compartmentalization type strategy, similar to what you hear Ellinger do, um, but a little bit unique um, in, in the sense of how they're created. Um, I don't necessarily focus too much on false canopy like they do. Um, and if I'm going to have a spruce tree, there's no reason, and it's location of where you plant, it's critical. Because you got to think about how the deer are going to use it in those kind of windy days and where you put it. So I'll give you an example. Right now I'm planting 30 evergreens. They're Norway spruce. I'm planting in the center of my property. I've had to take out 80% of the canopy to do this. It's on two slopes, and in the center there's a stream. But there's flat areas on either side of the stream. So on that hillside, what I've done is I've carved out a bunch of flat spots, right? I'm creating good topography for them to have interest in, in association with the already sloped areas. And then I'm placing behind those uh, the conifers. And these are seven or eight footers that I'm planting by hand or with my tractor, um, I actually, I'm doing the work and, you know, I have laborers that work for me I'm in my business and, uh, you know, they're, they're helping me do some of this stuff, but it's a lot of work. I mean, how much time and money do you want to invest in this stuff, right? It's not, it's way more expensive. You hear some of these guys making fun of miscanthus grass and how expensive it is. Do you know how expensive a seven, eight foot tree is? And I'm buying 30 of them. So I kind of laugh at those, I laugh at that stuff, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think miscanthus, um, I think it's got its benefits. 
I've had mis I've used miscanthus a lot longer, not miscanthus, I've used a different silver grass. Um, I've used that for a long time, not in, in, in settings like we're talking about, but I've seen them used in settings like that. And there's there's a correlation to the height and density of back cover and the relationship of what species are focused. Uh, is it a male or female that focuses on that bedding area? I don't want to get into that stuff, but there's a lot of tactics that go into these that aren't necessarily anecdotal, but there's been scientific studies on that I've, I've read and I've seen it in, in real life. So take take a good look at why are deer using an area on your property and copy it. It's that simple. Don't make it like as complex as I'm making it. Are they staying there? Why are they staying there? Copy, paste, put that all through your property, and you're really going to have more right. productive hunting. It's that simple. No, that sounds awesome. And thanks for going into that for me real quick. Um, I want to move on to, to switchgrass. We've been talking a lot about that lately. Um, a lot of people have been frost seeding or maybe they're waiting to drill it in. What's your strategy on, on frost seeding switchgrass or switch in, in general? What do you use it for? When do you plant it? How do you plant it? Uh, what species do you use? Go into that for us real quick. Um, yeah, so I'm in northern settings, and typically I'm recommending switchgrass on drier ground. Um, there are some varieties that do okay on wetter ground. Um, I usually use switchgrass strictly for screening. I don't use it for bedding. Um, if I'm going to use it for, for bedding, it's going to be in the means of screening or segregating deer. Um, think of a crisscross shape. Uh, typically those those kind of structures you would you would kind of create. Um, width and gap and all those things are kind of location specific and what the design needs to look like. 99% of the time, I'm using them around food plots. I'm making them as dense as possible. I want the switchgrass screen to be a deer desert. Um, I'm using switchgrass to create deserts, uh, low deer interest in those areas, and that's that's predominantly what I'm doing. Uh, the other strategy I've been working on, and, and it actually works, is I've been frosting switchgrass in the clover and killing the clover right now and then applying some cymazine. So establish a, a stand of, of, of clover. I do this a lot in field settings because it kind of works the way that the resident, uh, you know, I guess other non-wanted plants, we'll call them weeds. Yeah. And uh, the clover tends to produce, obviously, you know, it's inoculated a lot of nitrogen. So the, you know, especially in dry years, this does really well. Um, you'll frost seed your switchgrass into the clover, and then you can kill the clover. Um, you can kill the glyphosate right around when it hits about 50 degrees. That's when it's popping. Uh, and just before the soil temps reach about 60 degrees. If you go too late, you'll kill the switchgrass. Um, so you've just got to be careful. Uh, applying a pre-emergent like cymazine or atrazine. Um, you know, I, I, I have a big packet that goes to all my clients when, you know, uh, they, they get their packet of just strategy. I think switchgrass is great. I use a bunch of varieties. I make my own varieties, and, um, you know, I go to Ernst Seed. I've been using Ernst Seed for years. You know, you're going to pay anywhere between 9 to 10 pounds, uh, 9 to $10 a pound. That's pretty much what you're going to go for. It is relatively cheap, um, in my opinion. I mean, people complain about spending money on this stuff. People spend so much more money on other stupid things. I mean, give me a break, you know. Um, this stuff is cheap. Managing it. We can't burn here in New York State, so you're managing it typically with a brush hog and a rake, uh, which is totally painful. So if you're going to plant switchgrass, guess what, guys? you got to manage it. Don't just, uh, you know, just don't think it's going to continue to grow back because it creates a lot of duff and a lot of mess. And that's the same thing with miscanthus grass. Miscanthus grass needs to be managed, and, in fact, it needs to be burned, and so does switchgrass. 
So if you can't do that, it's going to take time and effort to manage it. So don't don't forget those points. So, uh, but yeah, varieties of switchgrass are key. You want denser varieties, taller varieties. Don't just plant one variety. You know, like the black wall that was really popular back in the day. Um, plant multiple varieties and have variation in height. Remember, in the areas that have snow loads, like New York State, you are not going to get the sustainability like you will in some of these like Western New York areas, like we're talking with Brian earlier. They don't get the snow load down there. Um, so these areas that don't get snow load, switchgrass isn't my always is my first selection in a lot of areas that get high snow loads. So just think about that. So integrating a different, um, I use willow cuttings a lot. I'm a huge willow guy. Um, I use willows for screening more than I do switchgrass. But it doesn't have that that stem density um, that you get with switchgrass. So, you know, there's some complementary things that you can do and strategies that you can do to kind of coppice uh, willows. So there's hopefully that's some strategies for your clients at least. Switchgrass can be really great. It can be a pain in the ass to manage. And, frankly, it does a lot for, I think, at least separating you from the deer. So use it for that purpose, number one. That would be my recommendation. Now, are you are you using um, you said mixed varieties to switch? Are you using like a Shawnee and a Caven Rock, or, or what are you using there? And do you worry about any sort of other seed in your switchgrass, like foxtail or anything like that? I I buy my seed from from Ernest as well, or uh, yeah. other food plots with their bedding their bedding mix. But I've learned that Ernest has some uh, foxtail and some of their stuff, or, or maybe it's a lack of a guarantee that there there won't be any, something along those lines I've learned, and it doesn't really scare me too much, but some people are concerned about it. Um, what's your thoughts on that, and, and are you mixing Shawnee and Cave and Rock, or what are you doing there? Yeah, so like, for example, uh, Northwoods, um, I've looked at theirs, I just was on a client recently where they used Northwoods, and I, I look at the, you know, you look at the, uh, you look at the seed tag, right, evaluate that. Um, the germ rates are really high, the germination rate rates are really high for Ernst. Uh, and that's seasonal. So, you know, year in and year out is going to be a little bit different. Um, I am using a variety. Um, and I think most of the time I'm recommending, you know, a shelter Shawnee Cape and Rock variety at different rates. And that's a really good, that's a really good base. You could, you could vary from that. You know, people talk about they have this special grade seed. There's hybrid varieties that they're coming up with all the time. But they're not that different from the blends that were in place 10 or 15 years ago. So don't think like somebody who markets, um, you know, switchgrass seed to be the best bedding in the bag in the world. It, it really is that case. Look for, like Jared, you're talking about, good germ rates. Um, there's going to be hard seed in there. It's going to take, you know, usually 20 to 30 percent. Um, so it's going to take, you know, maybe a year to stratify. It won't germinate the first year even stratifying. You'll, you'll find issues there. Um, but just just management over time. Um, if you apply the right types of chemicals, and I'm not a big chemical guy, you can kind of manage the foxtail and the witchgrass that comes up. And Simazine does a good job with witchgrass, and that's what you'll see a lot of. Most of the clients are getting kind of that witchgrass. I, I see on, I bet you I see that on at least 50% of my clients I go to. Is and and you can mow. I mean, you can mow. You know, just before it, it reaches that seed state, um, you can you can uh, you can mow the the uh, the plant and want to weed in that switchgrass stand. So there's definitely some options where you don't have to apply chemicals, and that works pretty well as well. So yeah, I mean I've had great results with Ernst stuff. Um, like you said, it's it's a better cost, and and you know for for what I've used it for, frost seeding, uh, you know not drilling, and and you know fairly minimal prior season 
management in terms of getting that ground nice and bare. It came up great, so no complaints there. But I did notice a little bit of foxtail here and there, but I yeah. don't have a huge issue with it. So to me, I can I can handle that. Um, yeah, yeah, and just now, take that fox foxtail and rip it out of the ground. I mean, exactly. Rip it right up by, by your by your hand. Uh, now, I are, add, are you I, frost eating this stuff, or and like how are you? Brian mentioned that you might be waiting a little bit to frost seed, or, or maybe doing things a little bit different with the frost seeding. Um, so how does that work? Yeah, my strategy with frost seeding is I want I want a six week period. I want to make sure that I'm on bare ground, right? Um, a lot of people want to frost seed on the snow. I've had a lot less productivity on my switchgrass in those situations. Um, it's nice because you can see where the seeds, you know, uh, displaced, and you can kind of get your idea of kind of what your seed count is per foot. But the reality of it is, we typically overplay more seed than we need. At least most people do, including myself. Um, frost eating works well. Um, six weeks out before your, you know, your last hard frost. I mean, we got 60 degree temps today, and this morning we were getting freeze thaw. So, you know, it's it's April. It seems a lot warmer. The ground temperature is a lot warmer than than normal. But I'm usually frost frost seeding, um, you know, the first week of March. And again, I'm I'm trying to make sure that the the snow load is is low. I mean, I have I've had I have broadcasted onto. Uh, you know, stands of, of snow, um, but I prefer that not to be the case. Snow tends to displace and congregate. A lot of a lot of times it depends on your texture, uh, the amount of rain that we get, the amount of runoff we get, um, the texture of the soil, uh, what's resident already there. A lot of people are frosting into soybeans or corn, um, and this the barren ground, depending on your slope. That's why, you know, slope is a factor in that, you know, your grade of your terrain, the texture of your soil, the resident material that all plays into your strategy on when to when to frost seed. Um, one thing I want to tell you guys, I learned I learned this mistake like, oh, this was probably, well, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago. Um, my neighbor um, and my parents' farm, uh, I, I was doing this huge conversion. I was taking this was huge at the time. I was taking seven acres and I was taking an agriculture field and I was converting it into, uh, you know. Uh, this intensely managed, you know, deer habitat, right? I, I had this grandiose idea 15 years ago, and I, I drew up a plan, and I was going to, you know, put it in place. And uh, we came in about, I want to say the first week in May, and we drilled, and I had done all my prep work. You know, I talked to the technicians at Ernst. You know, this is like 14 years ago, and, I, you know, they were – I was going to have them drive out just in case I screwed this thing up, right, because I was so into this project. And uh, – I no-till drill, I had a huge no-till drill access to one. It was like a 30-footer. Right? It was huge. Wow. It was like a $75,000 machine, okay, just the no-till <laughs> drill, okay? Um, and the ground was way too wet. And I just – it was the only time I could get the drill. It was the only time I could do this project. And and my my success rate was so low, the seed emplacement was way too deep. Now, I strategize and I, I planted with oats. That's a good strategy for anybody who's no-till drilling. But, you know, you could do a couple things. Sometimes when the ground is hard, it's a great time to, no, to, to, to use a no-till drill. Um, you can get the right depth. They aren't, it only needs to go down about an eighth of an inch. If you go down a quarter of an inch, your germs gonna be, germination rate's going to be way lower. You know, the strategy typically is that the diameter of the seed times 10. That's the depth. Switchgrass seed is so small. Um, and its preference is to be way higher up in the soil. 
So you got to make sure it doesn't get in too deep. So that's that's a pretty good strategy. But definitely be careful when you no-till drill, and definitely if the ground is wet um, and it just happened to be the seasonal situation there, do not, do not drill. So that's a that's a good tactic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what are you following up with that? Are you using any type of um, packing, uh, call to packer or crimper over top of that? Um, oh, after that situation? So I guess if it was, I guess if I was, well, I've done the other way too, is where I've actually worked off a, a, a prep bed. You know, like you plant a food plot, right? Go in and disc up an area or till an area. Um, in those situations, I would absolutely, you know, cultipack, spread my seed, and then cultipack again. Um, I would try to stay away from using tractors. If you can work off an ATV light equipment, um, that's that's really the best strategy. And that's the same thing with food plots. If you can stay away from a tractor, I'm telling people not to buy tractors. Okay, save your money. Don't spend $40,000 on that beautiful John Deere whatever color you like tractor. Save your money. You can do a lot of things off an ATV. I've been no-till, drill, no-till, no-drilling for five years food plots. I haven't put an ounce of fertilizer on any food plot, and I've done it all off an ATV. Now, I do have a tractor. Now, I have a giant, cult, I, I have a giant roller crimper. I mean, I have big equipment, but, man, you can get away with so much less. You can get away with a lawn, you know, a little riding lawnmower for, you know, a hundred bucks you can buy off your neighbor and make yourself a little, you know, a little crimper. Um, uh, but yeah, definitely if you're doing switchgrass, you know, make sure that you're make, getting at the right depth. If it gets too deep, you just will not get the germination. It cannot outcompete the resident plants that are that are probably in that native seed bank. So you got to do a lot of preparation, at least a lot of you're burning and churning, and you're putting a lot more chemical to manage that seed bank. And I don't like doing that. I hate putting chemical in the ground and but you know, switchgrass is one of those. It's, it's one of those plants that really needs a lot of help. Once it gets established, you're good. But uh, it takes a while to get there. Yeah, I, I should have clarified that for the. I, I was talking about for frost feeding. If if you were just broadcasting, if you had to pack it down or crimp it, obviously if you're no tilling, you're not going to need to have to do anything with that. But I appreciate yeah. you going into that for me for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. No problem. So you do a lot of uh, talking about invasives on your Instagram. Um, what are you seeing in your areas, and, and how are you dealing with this? Well, it's all over the place. Um, you know, I just want to talk about something that, that was uh, – it's an, not an invasive, but I, I just experienced this, and, and I've seen this more and more, uh, and it's, it's, it's something that's really bothering me, so I want to bring this up. Um, and I, was, I just saw this on a property that I was at in Springwater, New York, so it's western New York area. And uh, 10 years ago, there was a big push to uh, reduce the beach competition. Uh, our beach trees, you know, they're, they're really not very productive. There's been beach blight, et cetera. Um, you know, and there's a lot of this very hard focus on putting um, soil-activated um, herbicides on trees and either basil bark or stump spraying these trees and and it puts a huge huge impact on the ecosystem um and and i've gone to areas where they've done treatments and they've taken out beach because they think beach is bad um if you hunt western new york if you hunt the adirondacks and if you're cutting huge percentages of beach because you're trying to promote other species it's not a good tactic to remove big swaths of it 
So let me apply that to invasives. So I was on a property, I don't know, a month or so ago, and I, I'm, in, I'm on properties all the time, right? So the, the bush honeysuckle is ever-present. It's, it's all over the place. It's on the highways. It's in people's woodlots. And when you don't see it, it's, it's, it's a rare occasion. So uh, bush honeysuckle is like one of the most non-transparent, I want to say beneficial from a cover standpoint, but it puts out a lot of toxins. And um, if anybody doesn't know what bush honeysuckle is, it's greening up right now. So if you're in upstate New York, a lot of these areas, it's going to be the, one of the first plants to green up. And it's in a bush form. It's got kind of this epicorn shape. It, it kind of has twisty, crazy looking bark. It, it just, it's, it's a, it's a really dense shrub. Um, and it doesn't produce a lot of food, but it definitely produces cover. But it's, it's highly, highly, highly invasive. And, um, I cut those and I stump sprayed. Um, today I was just went up my property today. I was ripping a bunch of it out of the ground. So anytime you see it, I rip it up the ground. I stick it in the tree. If I can rip it out physically, I'll rip it out. I'll rip it out with my, my loader. I'll cut it, uh, mid, I don't know, mid-June, and I'll, I'll hit it with a little glyphosate, the stump, and I'll kill it. Um, I'll pile up those piles of honeysuckle, and I'll make um, – I like to make uh, little bunny huts out of it. It's good for hiding rabbits, hiding small mammals. So you can use it. It takes a few years to degrade. Um, black locust, I see that all the time. Um, black swallowwort. Swallowwort is bad news. That's uh, a plant you'll find in your food plots. Oh gosh, there's there's so many that I've seen on different properties. Um, Mars tail, you see. Uh, I mean, I've seen. You know, it's every property has its own issues, and it, usually it's related to how much human presence has been on the property, and that's either from tractors, trucks, right? They're just bringing the seed from all over the place, and it it, it can create a deer desert. Um, it's it's not good for brooding habitat for. Uh, turkeys or nesting habitat for turkeys. So, and again, there's a toxicity related to the bush honeysuckle as an example that doesn't allow things to grow around it. So the faster you kill it, the better off you're going to be. Uh, black locust, for example, I did that a post on Instagram. I leave it dead standing. Uh, it's, it makes great firewood, by the way. Um, but but, but uh, typically I'll chainsaw. So I'll go around and I'll, I'll girdle with chainsaw. And I'll, I'll hit it with a little uh, triclopyr, garlon, 3A in the, in the summer months, and then 4, 4 in the winter months. And uh, sometimes I'll mix a little diesel in there if I want to get, get a concoction going. I typically don't use arsenal or anything that's soil active. Stay away from soil active stuff. It just, again, it promotes it in the soil. And, and uh, just be really careful when you're applying it. Follow directions. Um, uh, there's some particular herbicides that have been banned in New York, like Cymazine, for example, is banned in a couple counties in New York now, which is interesting. But I buy it in powder form, um, and uh, you can get it in, in my county and a couple other counties, but there's some counties that they've banned it. So, yeah, invasive plants are not a good thing. Some of them do an awesome job, and they're damn thing because they form great cover. And there's a lot of interest in those areas, but you're not going to get edible plant species growing adjacent to an example like bush honeysuckle. They just can't compete with each other. You know, one's going to win, and usually it's your non-native. So think about that when you're looking at your landscape. John, you mentioned something a while back that I just can't 
I can't let go without asking a couple questions. You're you're a big a Willow guy, you said. Hi. I'm also a, a Willow guy. Um, cool. I have some in my backyard blocking my neighbor's house, thank God. Um, tell me a couple tips that you use. Are you buying cuttings? Are you buying rooted Willows? Is it hybrid, Streamco? Just give me a, a quick rundown on that, and then I want to get into edge feathering. Willows. Oh, I love willows. Okay, so I like that we're talking about this. So there's a bunch of there's there's willows are used uh, a lot of times for stream bake uh, stream bake stabilization, uh, and and uh, there's a couple strategies. Um, rooted willows do well. Um, I'm been traditionally using cuttings, and you always want to use younger cuttings, first year cuttings. They're usually a little bit more vigorous, um, and cuttings. You know, I, I may make some tools. You can buy tools. Um, I like to kind of just basically uh, take one of my tools, a pointed spike, stick it in the ground, take your cutting, stick it in the ground. And right now is the best time to do it. Um, I like to coppice them, so I cut them low, two, three inches off the ground, and they form more of a bushy structure. Varieties like Stremcole are great. Um, you can use them in field settings. It doesn't have to be super wet in order for them to grow really, really well. Uh, when you were talking about travel corridors earlier, travel corridors uh, a great means to kind of create kind of that security cover between area A and area B is using willow kites. But they do really, really well in obviously wet settings. Yeah, um, that's, where, that's where I've had the the challenges has been in a not that wet of a setting. That's why okay. I'm curious versus the willow, uh, the, the rooted versus the cuttings and, and what you're doing there in a drier setting. So um, dryer settings, um, okay. Or is, so it, or is it that you're planning now, you're planting in April now to get that wetter ground? Is that your your? That is one thought? strategy. So number okay. one is here's your here's your first strategy. Make sure you don't have compacted ground. So if you got to go in and till up an area or um, straight blade an area, um, when you have compacted ground, you've you got to alleviate that because that, that obviously limits the ability for – for that tree to be rooted. Uh, I typically don't use any rooting chemical, uh, very rarely do that. I'll soak in those cases where the ground is typically dry, um, and it depends on your soil, like usually you're not putting them in sandy areas. Um, in clay areas, obviously they do well, but there's a lot of compaction in clay areas. So one strategy is to soak the willows for a longer period of time, plant them early so you get the rains, you can also plant them in bundles. That's another strategy. And here's here's a quick way to do this. If you dig a line in the ground, and this is the same strategy that works with rhizomes, um, like the scampus grass, which you probably talked about in the podcast. Um, you you take a clump of them. So we'll take a bunch of cuttings, and let's say there are four, five, ten uh, cuttings in a, in, a, in a bunch. You can tie them together with hay bale twine or whatever you have. Um, and they could be one, two, three feet long. Stick them in the ground in a bundle. And they could be one or two together, three, four together. But stink up, if you stick them in lengthwise, so you stick them along that trench. Don't just take a cutting and stick it in the ground. This is an area that you dug out a trench. And you lay them in the ground and you stick some of the branching out of the ground. They'll actually root a lot better. And they'll root in, in groups. And as they pop up, you leave some of it out of the ground. And this is where you might want to have two or three together. It gives it more surface space to root, and that's the trick. That gets you more surface area, which gets you more moisture. Um, as they pop out of the ground, then you just work with coppicing them. So you can take those two, three strands that are sticking out of the ground, 
and over the next year, cut them again, and they'll grow, they'll grow. The vigor will increase. Um, and you'll actually notice some root shoots out of them. They'll actually kick out of the ground in certain areas. But that one area that you don't cover with dirt in that trench will grow like mad. So, you know, that's one strategy you could use. Um, you can water them. Uh, you could include irrigation. Uh, if you're using material like um, lumite, uh, cut it, open it up, make sure it's not too tight. It will girdle the trees. Um, again, you know, the strategy, you can use cymazine on them. And there's chemicals that you can use on them to, to cut down the weed competition. So, Jared, it's not a bad idea to keep weed competition around those and then eventually manage that maybe towards the later half of the, the summer when, when it's not so dry. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's, a, that's a strategy. In your backyard, you can water them. But, like, if you're doing them in a, a wood setting, you know, you're not going to have that convenience of, of, of having water maybe nearby. But, you know, that goes back to the strategy of picking the right type of location to plant those. And don't stress them out putting them, like, as an example, if you have sandy loom soil, that's probably a bad decision selecting those. Yep. So, uh, you know, match, match the soil of the plant. You know, keep it simple. You know, so do you do you normally lay them horizontal versus plug them in the ground, or is that just depending on how what where you're at or what you're doing? It, it depends. So okay, um, yeah, because yeah, I haven't heard that before. That's interesting. And there you go. You know, you know, um, here's another strategy. Uh, since we're so willow crazy, uh, guys, uh, if you're dev- if, if if you're creating a bedding area, willows are one of the best things for screening the back cover, and you can coppice them. You can inch cut them. Um, if you want to create solid back cover, uh, again, for purposes of concealment, camouflage for the deer, um, plant willows. You know, I think that's one of the most overlooked species that produces in such a short period of time. Um, and the density of, of a willow, you, they usually drop their leaves early, um, so they're not super productive. But, you know, it's funny, I'm, I, I'm right by SUNY ESS. SUNY ESS is a... Um, uh, they have a willow program, and I'm pretty good friends with the guy that manages that program. They use them for biofuel. So we use them cool. for screening. They use it for biofuel. There's a bunch of varieties that I, I mess around with. Um, some of them are proprietary to Syracuse, but I've, I've been able to kind of play with some of the different varieties. But there are places that sell other varieties other than Strumco. Um, you can actually use willows as a source of food. There are certain varieties that I don't have my notes in front of me, but there are certain varieties that, that, that you can plant as a source of food, um, kind of like you would right as your dog would, right? Source of food, a source of interest, and then some that are, are that are less um, less edible. And uh, one variety I use a lot is Fish Creek. That's what I use up on my own property. That's a hybrid variety. But you can call the uh, you know the the producer and and ask them those questions. You know um, they're they're knowledgeable in their area. They deal with deer a lot. They'll tell you what they don't eat and what they do eat. Um, and there's producers all through the country. Um, there's a couple of them in in New York that that I work with closely. And you know um, you know so there, you got tons of options. You don't have to use a strumco. Strumco works great, but there's other varieties that provide maybe a later uh, leaf drop or you know maybe become more dense as a, as a shrub. So. You got off. No, that's awesome. I appreciate you going into that. Yeah, I uh, I have uh, well, my buddy Brian and I. He's on a, a farm that I'm working on with him, his own cool. farm, and then mine. I think we have about 500 arriving tomorrow or the next day. So, 
Yeah, big Willow fans, buddy. Big Willow fans. Um, That's awesome. We got our connection, our Willow connection. I like that. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like you might have a new Willow connection uh, out your way. My, mine's here. My, I use Coldstream here in Michigan. They're pretty good. Um, yeah. Or I take cuttings off my own my own stuff that I've been growing. But, um, no, that's cool. Yeah, uh, it is. Moving on, I want to talk about your edge feathering techniques. Uh, I saw a post on your Instagram where, you know, you're implementing that. Um, Brian and I have both been, both been doing that. We've talked to a lot of people about that technique, but I don't see it enough. You know, I, I recommend it on, on our land plans uh, sure. almost all the time. Uh, but I guess what's your thoughts on it? Because, like I said, I'm not seeing it all that often. Well, I, I use it for all different things. Um, we'll do uh, reverse edge feathering, so lengthening and strengthening a field setting depending on what I'm trying to to get out of my, my strategy. So actually tipping trees back into the woods. Um, you know, and then on the reverse side, edge feathering is just basically softening the echo tone or that, you know, two different habitat or vegetation types uh, where they meet and just creating a softer edge to that. A lot of times you're trying to use the structure that you cut, and you can hinge cut or just traditionally fell trees along those edges, and and that creates in some cases a blockade. And as a result of that, um, you're going to get you know various forbs, um, some shrubbery. Uh, it increases the volume of moisture, and when you increase moisture in areas, you have a tendency to get more um, a woody structure. And it's not a bad strategy to, to implement, you know, sources of food along the edge. Um, you know, I, I can always think of you got, you know, cane briar or uh, cane briars, blackberry. Uh, I'm thinking cane. Um, you know, there's a lot of sources of food that, that result on those edges, um, but have variability in that edge. So using the edge to either create a blockade and making the deer go around the edge to use those as sources of food and have variability it's funny, edge feathering I've seen actually be nesting cover for, for turkeys. If you create if you create a dense amount of cover and some depth of cover into the woods, typically you're going to see nesting. And I don't make this this is this isn't really a turkey podcast, but um, if, if you're going to create some form of cover, figure out what animal is going to use that and why, and figure out the height and density of that cover. Um, and one thing that I like to do is if I've got a straight edge, like it's a long field line, let's say it's 300 acres or 300 300 feet um i would take 30 or 40 foot chunks and edge feather those at a time um and do it you know do it kind of in a shape where it varies so you've got let's say 30 feet and then you have a blank spot 30 feet in a blank spot and that variability will allow different species to grow based upon the available sunlight and that variability will produce kind of more interest um, there's some situations where I want to create variability in that edge just to block, you know, the visual advantage uh, for deer, and that's kind of this ebb and flowing. So some trees, they're taller, right? They're going to go further out in the field setting. Some trees are shorter. So it's kind of gauging, you know, what that's going to look like in a field setting. So I just did a conversion with a, a client where he took a 15-acre field, and we're turning it into a high deer interest point. And it basically looks like a carousel. So in the center – He's got um, bedding, and I won't go into the strategy there, but we use those treetops to help enforce that bedding in the center. But to the exterior, we want to create a lot of variability in the edge so the deer couldn't see a certain distance as they looked down an edge. And we used edge feathering because this field setting bumped up against a woodlot. And what we did is we cut almost in a straight line, 
that entire length, which was probably, I don't know, three or 400 feet. Um, we weren't worried about this segmented cutting strategy. We wanted variability, and the trees gave us that variability where the deer kind of almost ran in a snake shape. And we used the edge of what we were creating in the field setting to kind of create the snake shape. And that's, that's a form that I typically use, and that's the same kind of concept with your edge feathering with your distance into that field. So I don't know if I've explained it very well, but edge feathering can be a source of food, a source of cover, and a source of uh, visual blockade. And I think we could use that to limit and control where deer enter and exit. And enter and exit fields, and so I think that's predominantly what it's 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 intended to use for. Um, I like to use it for for visual, and and you get this kind of soft slope of different varying height species as it goes up into kind of your woodlot setting, and it creates that great compartmentalization that we talked about earlier. Uh, it does really well on flat ground, you know. So that's that's a that's a good strategy with edge feathering. Sure. No, I I totally agree. So you're you're going through at at thirty or forty fifty yard. Um, increments, if you will, edge feathering those yep. versus maybe like every other tree or every fifth, sixth tree kind of a – I like that. I think the more compartmentalization or, I don't know, kind of maze and pocket effect you're creating will, will give the deer a choice to go left or right instead of, okay, go here, 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 here. Where do you put the tree stand? So I exactly. think that, that works yep. out. Yeah, exactly. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, you want, like we talked about earlier, we wanted diversity in all our plantings. An example was, was switchgrass, right? Food plots is the same thing. Well, your woody woody settings or forest settings or, or, or woodland settings, just think about the variability in those. And that's the same thing with the field settings. If you can create variability, uh, creating differences, uh, that will discriminate interest. And so you want different points of interest. And that's just a strategy. Um, it doesn't work for every property. The strategy is always different. I'm always coming up with new things, but I'm telling you right now, you can do a lot of different strategies and, and, uh, you know, edge feathering isn't always on the top of my list, but it becomes a great source of food and we're trying to create more food. You know, the benefit of these properties that we're enhancing is there's a higher volume of food than most other properties, increasing the level of attraction. And that's where it starts. All right, John, I got a zinger for you. It's a question we ask everybody. Um, I'm wondering what your favorite tree is, whether it's planting, habitat work, uh, hunting out of, you know, sight, sightseeing, whatever it is, I want your favorite tree, and then follow it up by that. We're going to start this today. I want to know your, if you could only plant one seed species for the rest of the year in your food plots, just this year only, you had to pick one. Well, what that would be. Okay. Oh, tree, man. And I should have known you were going to ask me this question. So <laughs> I would have said hemlock. Um, I, th- I would have said hemlock a couple years ago. Um, but I don't know what it is. It's, 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 it's eastern white pine. I, I just love eastern white pine. The transparency isn't as dense uh, as it starts to branch out and grow, as long as it has enough sunlight and it's an upland area. Um, you know, it, it tends to do really well. It keeps its transparency. It helps with snow load. It's great for thermal. And we want deer to be really, really lazy. And that's a tree that creates a lot of cooling and uh, creates a lot of protection for deer. It's just, it's, it's a great tree for a lot of different benefits. And uh, like we said earlier, it's aromatic. It, 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 it's soft bristle. They scrape under it. It's going to be eastern white pine. That's going to be my number one tree. Yeah. Beautiful trees. Yeah, they're beautiful. 
Absolutely. And John, I got to ask that picture on your website. You're standing there with some really nice bucks. Are those all New York bucks on the wall there? Yeah, yeah. You know, I I don't travel out of state, and I do that on purpose. You know, I worked with a client this year in Ohio. He shot a 178 inch deer. I worked on this property. I'll go back out there and work with him. I I'm I'm worried about getting spoiled like that a little bit, and I I'm. I'm that 120, 130 class guy. Those are mostly all Central New York deer. Some of those are Western New York. Excuse me, Western New York. Um, but yeah, you know, and I'm one and done. I don't kill two big bucks a year. I'm trying to preserve the population. Um, although we did kill two bucks this year on my property. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm really conservative in my tactics. And oh, we shot six doe by the way. So I'm not, you know, <laughs> you know, I shot, I shot a couple doe and, and, uh, but. Yeah, yeah, those are all in central New York, um, upstate. You know, my deer population is really low. I like low deer populations. It's it's really easy to, to you know, increase the carrying capacity and, and to kind of promote a lot of diversity on, on your, your landscapes when the deer populations are really low. And you can raise and lower those really quick. Like, we shot six doe, which is way more than we should have shot based upon our situation. I'm trying to lower in, lowering the, the deer herd. I want very few deer on my property. Um, I just want to give their, their myself more space. And this is probably opposite of what most of your, your listeners want to hear. I want to create more usable space for deer and more available food. And and uh, I, I don't want them munching on everything that I see when I go to these properties in western New York and some of these really high populous deer areas. Real healthy, strong deer. I want to provide a lot of available food to them. So, uh, sorry, hopefully that answered your question. But, yeah, they're also New York deer. Yep. Great question, Brian, but you skipped over my, my seed choice here. I want to hear from John. If, if you had one choice of seed for the rest of the year, um, all, your, all your planting, spring and fall food plots for you, your clients, et cetera, you'd pick one seed choice. So it's going to boil down to winter rye or triticale. Okay. And I think I'll probably pick triticale um, at this nice. point. I've noticed a higher interest on it. It germinates at such a lower temperature, uh, you know, it vernalizes it at such a lower rate. It blossoms at such a lower rate. So I think I think triticale would be my number one choice, right? That's a mix between wheat and rye, or it's a hybridized variety. And 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 uh, I've been using that a lot more than, than winter rye, but it, 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 it survives just as well as winter rye, and it's a little more palatable. By the way, you know, the crude protein levels right now and some of that, that stuff is at an all-time high, you know, 24%. I mean, you know, that's that's uh, that's criminal. That's why you see deer, once they come off those slopes, they're, they're nailing them. And we get, I'm in the snow belt, so anytime we get, you know, bare ground, that's that's the first place they end up. So winter rye or triticale, I'm going triticale. I love it. Thanks for that. That was a curveball. Uh, we haven't asked that on the podcast yet, 120-something episodes in, but <laughs> I know, uh figured we asked about the tree. Why not ask about the, the seed choice? Yeah, um, I And that. I know our, our buddy Nick at Killer Food Plus, he's always talking about triticale. Oh, cool. So I'm glad Good. that you, you know, kind of jumped in there a little bit and explained what it is and, and how it works because we haven't really touched on that yet. So appreciate that. Yeah, yeah that's great. That's great. That's great. All right, John, if, if the listeners want to find you online, how do they do that? And, uh, you know, let's wrap this up. Yeah, no, so uh, again, John Teeter, uh, my business is called Whitetail Landscapes. And I do this professionally, design hunting properties uh, all over the Northeast, predominantly in New York, 
Um, you know, my my property management plans are right around oh, probably 75 pages of written material per per client. Uh, you get about a hundred to 120 page package um, when you when you hire me. I uh, usually do a lot of on-site stuff, but I, I, I come. I've got guys that do implementation work, um, but I'm really in the consulting business, right? I'm providing recommendations. My plans are really, really specific, um, you know, and, and they're, they're designed that way. I want to give you kind of a blueprint to success, and that's, that's really the focus of my business. I've um, been doing this for a bunch of years, and uh, i got clients all over the place, you know, guys that are cops, uh, you know, uh, attorneys, you know. And all different means, shape, ways, and forms, and that's really important. I work with landowners of small and large. Um, what I will say is, you know, I think people make this way too complex, and if this came across as way too complex, I apologize. Um, there's, we could have gotten way, way, way deeper into the weeds than any of this stuff. And I think hunting's a lot simpler. I think a lot of this manipulation tactic is a lot simpler. Um, don't get chalked into the YouTube guy that has three best things that are out there. Really think hard about what your property can can do. And a lot of us have a lot more knowledge than we recognize. We're just not taking the time to think about that. So in your day, spend five minutes thinking about a small improvement you can make and then grow on it. These small improvements go a long way. And uh, that's what I'm here to help. I'm here to speed up the process with that. Um, and, and I try to be affordable affordable, but you're getting a ton of content. Um, there's, It's a totally different approach. I'm creating kind of a, a Bible to success. And uh, usually when you get the plan, um, you know, we don't have to talk, but most of my clients, we always do an exit with them. And a lot of times I'm going back to do work on clients. So don't feel like, you know, you can't contact me to do that. I'm mostly on Instagram. I do have a Facebook site. Um, I am booked through March of 22 right now. So I don't have a lot of space, but you know, I do a ton of clients, um, but I spend a lot of times. Uh, I spend a lot of time with a client. Uh, usually, they're 12, 14-hour days. Um, I will, I will not shut up when I'm on your property, like I've been on this podcast, and we will talk and talk and talk. And I love building relationships and making friends. And I really appreciate Jared and Brian. You have me on. Uh, find me at Whitetail Landscapes. So, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have... Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in. Once again, 
Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. <laughs>